Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we welcome back Boston University law professor Jay Wexler. When he last spoke to us, he had taken a road trip around America to visit sites of Supreme Court battles. Now he's taken a global odyssey looking at places where religion and environmentalism collide. We speak to him about his new book, When God Isn't Green. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and today we're welcoming back one of our first guests on the show. Uh, He first joined us in 2012 with an episode we called Religion and the Law, and we're happy to welcome back Jay Wexler to talk about his new book, When God Isn't Green, A Worldwide Journey to Places Where Religious Practice and Environmentalism Collide. Jay Wexler is a professor at the Boston University School of Law, where he has taught environmental law and church-state law since 2001. He's the author of three previous books, one of my favorites, Holy Hullabaloo's, and another book called The Odd Clauses. Jay Wexler, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you. It's great to be back. Yeah, it's good to have you back. I'm so excited for this new book. I, When I got started reading it, uh, it, it had all the pieces that I, I loved about your earlier book, Holy Hullabaloo's. It was funny, it was engaging, but it was also incredibly informative. And I wonder if, if we could start out just uh, sort of talking briefly about what you're trying to accomplish in this new book, When God Isn't Green. Well, I'm trying to point out that there are kind of inevitable conflicts around the world uh, between religious freedom and environmental protection. And I'm trying to explain to my readers uh, that that clash occurs. You have a very difficult tension that is very hard to resolve. So in other words, uh, what I do in the book is I go around the world and I examine places where religious practices just happen to harm the environment and talk about what societies are doing to try to you know, deal with that problem. And I try to impress uh, upon the people who read the book that there are no easy solutions when you have a clash like that. That we, when you value two things uh, really seriously and they happen to clash, uh, you have a lot of uh, hard, you know, balancing to do. So if we believe in environmental protection, but we also, most of us, I think, believe in religious freedom. And so when they run into each other, it raises some really difficult issues. And we talked about this extensively in our last interview, but for those listeners who haven't had a chance to go back and hear that yet, let's maybe start the conversation with sort of a a, a general definition. When you use the term religious freedom, what are we talking about? I guess I'm talking about the uh, freedom of religious believers to not just believe in what they want, but to practice what they believe in, given that the government is uh, often passes laws that prohibit certain kinds of behavior. And those laws happen to oftentimes restrict what religious believers can 
do. The claim that religious believers make is that they uh, that they should have some sort of freedom, uh, constitutional freedom, or sometimes it's under a, a statute or something, uh, to practice their religion, even though there might be a government interest on the other side or government law that might pro- pro- prohibit them from otherwise practicing what they what they believe in. Now, why in the world would a government ever want to stop a nice religious person from practicing some aspect of what they believe? Well, uh, usually it's not because they are anti-religion or that they want to target the religion or be mean to the religion, although sometimes that's, that happens. But oftentimes you have the government trying to promote just a general interest, say, for example, uh, the interest in um, keeping people from using drugs and uh, or... Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, you know, you can't use, the federal government says you can't use marijuana. You can't sell marijuana or smoke marijuana. And there happen to be religious people who believe they ought to, they, it's their, uh, that they're required to smoke marijuana. Now, the government isn't trying to crush the religion through that general law, but it does have the effect of limiting what the religious uh, believer can do. Or to take, um, let's see, to take another example, there was a, the, uh, the the Air Force used to have this rule that said you couldn't wear headgear, uh, any kind of headgear, if you were in the Air Force. And the rule, that was for some sort of safety or protection reason or uniformity reason uh, that the government passed that regulation and wasn't like aiming at Jews, for example, who believe they have to wear a yarmulke, but it happened to have the effect of restricting this uh, guy's right to wear a yarmulke, and so he sued and ended up losing in the Supreme Court, although the, gov- the government finally let him wear his yarmulke. So it's when the government tries to promote a general interest, and it happens to have the incidental effect, kind of inevitably, on somebody's religious beliefs. Sometimes the government passes something that is uh, a law for safety or for uh, general uh, welfare of a population, and it has a secondary effect of of curbing some religious practice, like in the in the example that you gave, wearing a headgear, a yarmulke. Um, those are not examples of religious persecution, are they? No, I don't think they are. I don't think um, I would de- I wouldn't describe them as religious persecution. I would describe them as simply uh clash between worldviews in a way uh, the government has one view that certain things are important and then individuals individuals who practice uh, their religion have a different view i'm i'm thinking of <clears throat> a more contemporary example um from uh this this case that came out of newark and it, and there are cases uh, like it where uh, the police department uh prohibits people from wearing beards you know and uh that's to to create this esprit de corps uh Kind of interest, and but then there are there are Muslims who believe that they they can't shave their beard for religious reasons, and what happens when those two interests clash? Now, a moment ago, we were talking about examples of laws that are not specifically targeted to curb religious practice, but in your book, Holy Hullabaloo's, uh, and I'm sure in in contemporary case law, we could find examples as well of points where the government oversteps and actually attempts to curb the practice of a, of a religious uh, practice or a, a religious group. Could you give us an example of that? Are you talking about uh, instances where the government does, in fact, you think, target the religious group? Yes, instead of, instead of just having a general law that has a secondary effect, but instead they're actually going after a specific religious practice. Right, sure. So that does happen. There's a famous case in the Supreme Court about it where the Supreme Court said you can't do that. <clears throat> it was a 9-0 to decision. It was uh, involved uh, animal sacrifice in uh, in Miami, 
the San, a Santeria group had started uh, sacrificing animals kind of in public or made it, made it public that they were doing it, and the, the town kind of flipped out and over the course of a weekend passed a bunch of laws that purported to be like general animal uh, safety laws or, or protection laws, but were in fact aimed directly at the Santeria practice. And so <clears throat> that happens, and the Supreme Court says if it, can, if it, if it finds out about that, <laughs> you know, if you, do, if you do it in a really crude way and the, the courts can tell that that's what you're doing, uh, the court will strike it down. Uh, Anti-Sharia laws, for example, might uh, fall under that category. We have laws in, for example, Oklahoma had a law they passed which, which said that the, the courts of Oklahoma shall not rely on any foreign law, including Sharia law. And that's basically discriminating against a specific religion. And the court there, uh, that wasn't the U.S. Supreme Court, but the, I believe the Oklahoma Supreme Court, or perhaps it was the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, the federal court struck that down as pure discrimination against religion. So it certainly happens. There are points when the government has a legitimate stake to step in if it's doing what's called general law, or I believe there's another term, neutrally applicable law. And that's, that's constitutionally protected behavior on the part of our American government. But there are other examples of other times when a government at the federal level or the, the local level might specifically target a religion. And you, you talked about the Santeria case, but also Sharia law. And when you're singling out a religion and saying that practice is not okay, then there's a, there's a constitutional restriction against the government doing that. Am I correct about that? That's correct. And I would make two, uh, two further um clarifications also. One is that sometimes it's hard to tell if you have a general law, a neutral law of general applicability, or whether you have a law that kind of devalues religion. For example, if you have a law that looks general, but it has a bunch of exceptions, but no exception for religion, sometimes you could argue, well, that's a law that really doesn't respect religion as much as it should. For example, this beard situation that I was just talking about comes from a case uh, where the Third Circuit Court of Appeals said that the Newark Police Department's a restriction on wearing beards was un- actually unconstitutional because there was an exception for medical reasons, uh, but not an exception for religious reasons. And that's that's kind of a hard case, but but it, it points out that sometimes you can uh, 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 the government can end up targeting religion in a way that is a little subtle because it has a general law, but lots of exceptions, but not exceptions for religion. And the other point I would make is that uh, under federal statutory law. Uh, specifically the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which applies to the federal government, as well as some state statutes and state constitutional uh, requirements. Uh, sometimes you'll find that a, a, general govern- uh, a general law of neutral applicability, or neutral law of general applicability, I always mix that up, um, will violate the, uh, some, some source of law, whether it be a state constitution or a federal statute. And so that's, uh, that, that's kind of a... Uh, that's not a federal constitutional requirement, but, but it sometimes is, uh, is, is required as a matter of federal statutory or state constitutional law. And as we're, as we're sort of getting these sort of pieces onto the chessboard, there's one other thing I, I sort of want to touch on. Oftentimes when, when we hear about these cases at the Supreme Court, a phrase will keep coming up, and that is the phrase compelling interest and, and maybe also least restrictive means. If you could tell us quickly what compelling interest and least restrictive means mean. That's kind of uh, the classic formulation for what's called strict scrutiny that the, that the Supreme Court uses, and it uses that in cases where very important rights are allegedly infringed upon by government action, whether it be dis- racial discrimination or, uh, or free speech rights, for example. And so in the, religious con- in the context of religious freedom, if 
for example, the uh, under in a case called uh, in a sta- under a statute like RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. If you're just joining us, uh, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Jay Wexler. He is the author of the new book, When God Isn't Green, A Worldwide Journey to Places Where Religious Practice and Environmentalism Collide. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Jay Wexler. He's a Boston University School of Law professor, and he has a new book, When God Isn't Green, A Worldwide Journey to Places Where Religious Practice and Environmentalism Collide. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you know that Jay Wexler was one of our first guests in 2012 in our show number 1207, Religion and the Law, and we're happy to welcome him back. Well, Professor Wexler... When you wrote uh, the book that we talked about in 2012, Holy Hullabaloos, you basically took a road trip around the United States of America, visiting all the different sites uh, where a, a significant Supreme Court case about religion had occurred. And in this new book, When God Isn't Green, you choose instead to go around the world and visit a whole bunch of different countries where environmental laws or environmental interests and religious practices are in a collision course. You like traveling, don't you? <laughs> My uh, next book is about space. <laughs> I'm going to the moon. No, uh, I do really like traveling, and, and I realized when I wrote Holy Hello Blues that it's really fun and informative in a, in a to go to places where things are actually happening and meet the people who are involved and talk to them and see, you know, on the ground what's happening as opposed to reading about it in books, which is what, as a professor, I usually do. So when I had this chance to, to, to expand my travels outside of the United States, I jumped at the chance. Now, you teach constitutional law, and particularly with a, you, you have a focus a lot of times in your, in your teaching on First Amendment issues and religious issues. We have protections in the, in the United States for religious belief and religious practice. But when you, when you begin to go around the world, uh, that's not always the case. And so what was the first thing that you encountered when you began to go to sort of uh, places outside America and encounter these different legal systems? What were some of the things that you took away from that? Well, <clears throat> it's interesting. Um, actually, uh, um, it's kind of a hard question. I... It, most of the I, I, first of all, I should say I don't really have a, I can't claim to have any full understanding of the legal systems that I uh, in, in all the countries that I went to. I mean, trying to understand all the the legal system of India, for example, it's just uh, not something I was able to do in the time that I was researching the book. But what what, what I did find is that you you do get different approaches, different um, uh, in, in many places to these to these issues that you would, then you would see in the United States, for example. Uh, and actually, they they're tend to be more pro-religion, I think, uh, at least in the examples I saw, where it seemed to be very difficult for the government to try to figure out how to protect the environment in cases where religious rituals were having uh, pretty, pretty harmful 
effects. Uh, I'm thinking about India specifically because that's uh, that was one of my most interesting trips. I thought maybe the most interesting. I went there to investigate the uh, a festival in Mumbai where um, millions and millions of Hindus worship the Ganesh god uh, over the course of ten days of worshiping giant twenty foot statues of of, the, of Ganesh, and then at the end of the festival, they sort of they 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 parade the the idols through town. And they bring them to the water, and they just leave them in the sea uh, where they disintegrate. And <laughs> so, our listeners are clear about about what we're talking about here. Uh, give us a visual. What does Ganesh look like? Ganesh, so Ganesh is a is a an elephant god. He has an elephant head and a uh, human body and several arms. <laughs> Sometimes four, sometimes more. Uh, there's always a mouse involved. Apparently, the Ganesh always is, is protected by a small mouse, and so uh, and so that so it's an elef- elephant-headed god, basically. Uh, that's supposed to be the remover of all obstacles, among other things, and and it's one of the uh, one of the big uh, deities that uh, is worshipped in Hinduism, and especially during this festival. And so what we're seeing, or what you saw, and what we're seeing through your eyes is, um, you said 20-foot-tall statues, so big elephant-headed, multi-armed statues made of, made of various materials being taken down to the water and disintegrated in the water. Do I have that right? <laughs> well, they're, made, they're almost always made of plaster of Paris, and they only sort of disintegrate when they get into the water. They kind of break up. They add all the silt and particulate matter and stuff to the water. Uh, some of them only break into chunks. The studies that have been done seem to show that it's uh, that they've had a terrible effect on the water quality. But yeah, you're right. General, basically, it's bringing giant or regular size, but oftentimes giant idols and leaving them into the in the sea. And you said that millions of people do this. Oh yeah. Um, they, well, Mumbai has 20 million people, and it's. A festival that encompasses the entire city. I think actually there were maybe a hundred thousand uh, idols, in fact, immersed during the festival. A hundred thousand, and most of those are fairly small, family-sized idols, like three feet tall or something. But many, many of them are much larger—six, twenty, twenty-five feet t- tall. And it, it's clear to see how this would have a detrimental I- impact on the environment. And so. I think maybe some of our listeners who are not religious might say, well, that's, that's a no-brainer. You simply say to these multiple millions of people, you can't do that anymore. Why, why right. can we not simply do that? Uh, well, right. So that's what's, uh, what I find so interesting about the, these, um, these clashes is that you have some people. Uh, so if I'm talking to an environmentalist group, I might get a reaction like you said, like why would we, we wouldn't let uh, some you know, non-religious person go and bring giant idols of a football player or whatever into the water. I suppose there it would be a cricket player and leave them in the water. So why would we, why would we possibly let religious people do the same thing? Um, and then, of course, if you talk to religious people, they might say, well, what's the big deal? And this is kind of our most important, most uh, uh, sort of formative belief that makes up our entire identities. And it's not like the biggest source of pollution out there, but, but compared to industrial or municipal pollution, it's uh, a drop in the bucket. So why would, we, why would the government ever think to regulate religion? And my point is that somewhere in the middle is, is, is the right approach, I think. And so we, we, it's true that we want to protect the environment, of course, but it's also true that we want to protect religious freedom. And if you're in Mumbai on the day of this festival, 
uh, and you see millions and millions of uh, Hindus celebrating, uh, you know, the, and seeing the vitality of this ritual and how uh, happy everybody is and how much, you know, meaning everybody derives from this uh, day, the idea of prohibiting it is, is just impossible to imagine. And in fact, that gets back to my original point when you asked me about the legal systems and how they interact with um, religion elsewhere. This is this is an area where you can't even imagine, uh, I think, really the law being able to significantly restrict this religious ritual because it is so important and so vital and so many people practice it there. Um, it's been tried. There, <clears throat> there was a state, not the one that Mumbai is in, but the next-door state tried to prohibit this practice altogether um, and tried to require people to use clay idols instead of plaster of Paris idols because they uh, dissolve in the water and cause much less environmental damage. And the courts there said, no, you can't do that. And so uh, this is an area where religion really has more power, I think, than perhaps it does in the United States. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Boston University School of Law professor Jay Wexler about his new book, When God Isn't Green, a worldwide journey to places where religious practice and environmentalism collide. So in the book, you talk about these vignettes where you travel to a place and you encounter a religious practice that has an environmental impact. And just a moment ago, we were talking about uh, the practice in Mumbai where huge statues of the elephant-headed god Ganesh is taken and dunked in the sea. Um, We also uh, have a vignette where you are going to... uh, where you are going around and, and exploring the practice of ghost money burning or joss burning. And I'm very interested in this because that's that's a place where you encounter both sort of enthusiastic environmental degradation and enthusiastic attempts to mitigate the environmental degradation. And first of all, just as a way of getting in, when we talk about ghost money burning or joss burning, what are we talking about? Well, mostly we're talking about the uh, a festival called the Hungry Ghost Festival during which Dallas <clears throat> burn paper that looks like money uh, in huge quantities in order to appease these hungry ghosts so that they will leave them alone and be nice to them. It's kind of an, it's a, in a way, it's an ancestor worship uh, kind of ritual. And so this paper, uh, I have some in my office. I'm looking at it right now. It's uh, it, like it says, uh, it, it looks like a dollar bill or, or, or you know, a, a Singaporean dollar or whatever, and it, but it says, you know, Church of uh, Hades, or a bank of Hades on it, right? And, and, and so people burn stacks and stacks and bags of this, each, each individual person stacks and stacks and bags of it. And so collectively, the city like Singapore or Hong Kong uh, during this festival is burning tons and tons and tons of this uh, paper. And the paper contains all kinds of particulate matter, which has been studied by scientists and is shown to be extremely bad for um, <clears throat> for pulmonary conditions and all sorts of other health problems. And so when we talk about this practice, we're talking about something that could really detrimentally affect people with asthma or young children or the elderly. And so there's, there's a real immediate health risk involved, isn't there? Absolutely, and if you look um, online on, on the web and kind of look around at articles uh, from Singapore specifically, where which is a very diverse country where people live right next to each other, you know, people who have very different religious beliefs live right next to each other, you see instance after instance where people are kind of 
yelling at each other uh, to keep your joss smoke to yourself and stop burning stuff on your porch. And, uh, you know, uh, th- there was one incident where this one lady got really, really mad at this other guy who was burning joss and threw a television at him. And so uh, it, it causes a lot of, uh, you know, immediate distress to people who are... Well, to people who are practicing it, true, sure, but uh, but to other people who, are, of course, are not consenting to the practice, uh, uh, even even more so. We're speaking today with Jay Wexler. He's uh, he's a professor at the Boston University School of Law, where he's taught environmental law and church-state law since 2001. He's the author of, of several books, including one of my favorites, Holy Hullabaloo's, and a book called The Odd Clauses. We're speaking today about his most recent book, When God Isn't Green. We'll be back in a moment. Hello, listeners. I just wanted to let you know about a new podcast that I'm launching with Emily Grassley from the Field Museum. It's called Divides Aside, and it's science and faith in conversation. This podcast is about laying down differences and finding new ways to understand each other. In these deeply personal conversations, me and Emily talk about our ways of seeing the world and why they they so often come into conflict and why we so often disagree. But as the episodes unfold, suspicion gives way to a growing friendship. Listeners get a chance to glimpse the difficulties and rewards that come when we put our divides aside. You can listen to it on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at Divides Aside and on Facebook.com, also at Divides Aside. Please do listen in. We'd love to get your feedback. We'd love to learn how to do this better. And we'd love to share this conversation with you. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Professor Jay Wexler. He teaches at the Boston University School of Law, and he's been on faculty there since 2001, teaching both environmental law and church-state law. He's the author of several books. We had him on in our 2012 season to talk about his book, Holy Hullabaloo's. Today we have him back, and he's speaking about his new book, When God Isn't Green, A Worldwide Journey to Places Where Religious Practice and Environmentalism Collide. When you have a populated area and you have a significant number of people engaging in a religious practice that has an environmental impact, oftentimes that has to be balanced against the people who are not of that religious practice or might be of no religious practice at all. Is that correct? Right, absolutely. And so um, what they've tried to do, it, it differs by country. Uh, in Singapore, they, uh, there's, there's uh, one thing they try to do is they try to... Um, encourage church, uh, uh, temples to use kind of smokeless furnaces. So uh, I visited this one temple where you go and you put your joss paper in the, in the, in the furnace, and instead of the thing belching out uh, black soot from the top after, it gets, after it's burned, it goes through some sort of um, you know, technological transformation or something, and basically nothing comes out. So you have, <laughs> you're burning the paper, but there's no smoke. Uh, and so that's something that they've tried, uh, and the, but, the, but the problem which I noticed with that is that nobody likes to use those kinds of things. 
because they don't they don't allow people I think to express their religious uh, you know beliefs in the, in a in a vital way. If you put you put your paper in the in the furnace and nothing comes out, what are you doing for the gods? You know, sort of. So. Uh, but there, but definitely, there have been these attempts to try to figure out ways to reduce the amount of burning and uh, ban certain kinds of things. And but it's it's a really difficult problem because people believe very strongly that they need to burn the paper, and so it's there's a lot of pressure on the government to allow them to do it. You were talking about a philosophy that we find in in communities that have ancient roots that involve uh, interaction with specific and and uh, significant spirit animals. And so you talk about the Native American tribes that that see eagle feathers as very important, or you, you look at the, uh, the practice of whaling in, uh, in Barrel, Alaska. And you used a phrase that I want to dig into, and that was the notion that these, that these communities have, that in some way the animal gives themselves to the community in the process of the hunt or in the taking. And could you just tell us a little bit about what that, what that, what that worldview is like? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what both situations are about. I mean, I've seen, I've seen that uh, mentioned both with respect to the feathers and, uh, and eagles generally and the whales. And I think the idea is the whale hunters, for, to take the whaling, uh, the, the hunters have to sort of be as pure as they possibly can be. They need to basically worship the whale and to uh, respect the whale. And if they do that, and they do it the, in the proper way, then the whale will recognize that the community is worthy of being sort of, it's worthy of its own sacrifice. And so the whale then responds to the way that the hunters have prepared for the hunt and acted during the hunt by turning itself over to the, to the hunters and then therefore to the community so that the community can uh, continue to live, basically. I mean, because, I mean, places like Barrow, Alaska, you, there's no food. <laughs> so, I mean, you can't grow anything. And so you, they really do rely on whales and other, and other animals like walruses, for example, for their livelihood. So it's kind of a sacred combination of the community acts in a way that respects and worships the animal, and then the animal repays the community by giving itself to the community so that the community can continue to flourish. Well, when I hear you describe it that way, it sounds as if this is a very symbiotic relationship that is very much taking into account the balance of nature. And that, to me, sounds like the best of all possible kind of arrangements with regard to environments, because the the community would die and would not be able to have its livelihood or its subsistence if it over-farmed or if it over-hunted and yet I'm aware that there must be an environmental objection from, from the environmentalist philosophy, even to that level of symbiosis and that level of balance. And I, I wonder if you in, encountered or explored or researched what that environmental objection would be. Well, when I wasn't there when there was any environmental kind of uh, opposition. So in other words, there are not environmentalists who are, who are hanging out just generally in Barrow to, to uh, object to the practice. But occasionally... You certainly do see environmentalists object to even subsistence whaling practices like this. You know, there was a movie about Barrow, Alaska, um, because Barrow, Alaska is the place where these where three whales were kind of were stuck 
in the ice a, few, a bunch of years ago. Sort of the world turned its attention to the attempt to free these whales, and the, and the world sort of started focusing on Barrow, Alaska during this period. And there were definitely environmentalists who realized what was going on in Barrow and were talking about how there shouldn't be any whaling at all. In, in fact, there was a period of time when the International Whaling Commission actually did take away the, the permit that allowed them to, to hunt certain uh, whales in, in Barrow. And I talked, I, I tried to ask people who were there during that period what it was like those years. And it was just, it, the, the, how they expressed it was, it's just a dark time. The community fell apart. It was, you know, it was incredibly sad. And so I agree with you that, it, that in this, that particular case, the whaling uh, and the community exist together, and it's, and it's a, a good relationship. Now, but you can imagine from the perspective of somebody who just doesn't buy into this worldview at all, and all they see is a, is uh, people killing whales for food, you know. And why would you why would you allow anyone to do that? These beautiful animals who are so majestic and so brilliant and have families and all and all the things that draw people to whales, you know. I think that's their perspective. Uh, if you don't credit at all the unique beliefs of the community, then the justification for killing these creatures goes out the window, right? And it's just mass slaughter. If you're just joining us, uh, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Jay Wexler. He is the author of the new book, When God Isn't Green, A Worldwide Journey to Places Where Religious Practice and Environmentalism Collide. Well, and you just raised an issue that I really would like to dig into, and that's the notion of crediting the unique beliefs of a community. Because, again, we're dealing with things that can't be objectively, evidentially uh, justified. Um, someone says to you, the invisible sky god that I worship has told me that I need to do this practice. And you can simply wave your hand and say, there are no invisible sky gods, and we're part of an American secular culture that doesn't recognize that we should have the government engaging with invisible sky gods or earth gods or water gods or name your god. Um, so why should I? Why should I care? Why should I? Why should I give any credence at all to um, a belief or a practice that is that is ethically abhorrent to me? Why should I make space for the invisible sky or earth or water gods of my neighbor? Right, and you hear that all the time. Um, that's the kind of attitude that drives me crazy amongst my some of my peers. You know, it depends whether you have empathy for other people and are willing to sort of put aside your own h- hardcore beliefs to allow there to be space in, in, in public and to some extent in public policy for recognition uh, of what other people believe, even if you don't believe it and you, you know, claim you can't see it. We're a society where we have lots of people who share, who have lots of different beliefs, and we could go around and telling people that they're wrong, I suppose, but that doesn't seem like a very good way to run a society. Uh, so that's why I don't like the angry atheists, for example. Or we could empathize with our fellow citizens and say to ourselves, well, we ca- I can't see the water god, but this person obviously believes that there is a water god, and that belief is incredibly important to that person's identity. And so I'm going to you know, allow that person some space to to practice that religion, as long as uh, it doesn't destroy, you know, some of the liberal principles I, I stand for. For example, I'll, I'll allow the government to let them worship the sea god uh, in a way that I might, you know, we might otherwise be skeptical of. Well, let's stay with this line of thought, but let's flip it around. So we've talked about creating space in the public sphere for 
a multiplicity of religious practices, some of which we might not agree with. But we also have examples of those sometimes in the majority religion. Uh, in our case in America, that would be Christianity, but we could also talk about you know Buddhism or Islam in other countries and other cultures. But uh, an attempt to take and solidify a religious belief or a religious practice or a religious expectation into civil law. Now, we, we, we were first talking about creating space for multiple practices, but now we're talking about taking one practice and making it central to uh, a civic uh, conversation. What is the objection to that? Why, why can't we take our laws in America and, and base them on uh, religious ideas and religious principles of the majority religion? Well, so now we're talking about government actually supporting religion or government putting its, uh, you know, its endorsement behind religion or a particular religious practice. And I think that the problem with that is it gets the government involved in, in uh, proclaiming that one viewpoint is true and other viewpoints are, are false or not worthy of respect. And I think that's not what the government ought to be doing. The government, of course, is, serves everybody. Uh, and all the citizens, regardless of what they believe or don't believe. And so I think the government ought not to uh, to sort of enact one view of the good life or one view of uh, ultimate meeting, for example, that's contested into binding law, law that's binding on uh, people who don't believe it. I think that's not what we want the government to do. So so I think the government has the the obligation to provide space for religious believers, but that doesn't uh, at all mean that it ought to support any religion, whether it's a majority or, or anything else. We're speaking today with Jay Wexler. He's, uh, he's a professor at the Boston University School of Law, where he's taught environmental law and church-state law since 2001. He's the author of, of several books, including one of my favorites, Holy Hullabaloo's, and a book called The Odd Clauses. We're speaking today about his most recent book, When God Isn't Green. We'll be back in a moment. Earlier in the program, we talked about advertising, but there are ways to support things not seen, even if you don't have anything to sell. I just wanted to take a moment and give a quick shout out and thank you to our Patreon supporters. Now, if you don't know what this platform is, it's a way for you to regularly give contributions that support our work every time that we release a new episode. It costs you just a little bit, like maybe the cost of a latte a month, maybe a dollar an episode, but it adds up because it aggregates with all the other people and ends up being a nice sum for us. Many of you have stepped up. We've only been doing this for a few weeks, but already the numbers are there, and I appreciate it so much. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, you can do it very easily. Just go to patreon.com. That's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash notseenradio. Thank you always for listening, and thank you especially for your support. We really do appreciate it. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Professor Jay Wexler. He teaches at the Boston University School of Law, and he's been on faculty there since 2001, teaching both environmental law and church-state law. He's the author of several books. We had him on in our 2012 season to talk about his book, Holy Hullabaloo's. Today we have him back, and he's speaking about his new book, When God Isn't Green, A Worldwide Journey to Places Where Religious Practice and Environmentalism Collide. A moment ago, you used a phrase. You said, the government is here to serve everybody. 
And that really brings us to the heart and soul of both the book that we talked about in 2012, Holy Hullabaloo's, and this current book, When God Isn't Green. And that's the notion of balancing competing interests. And you've spent uh, a good portion of your career studying the way that uh, the American government has tried to balance the competing interests of religious practice and sort of civil accommodation, but also you've, you've balanced the kind of interests of of the way that we use the environment both for commerce but also for uh, longevity and the flourishing of, of life. And I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about the philosophy of balance from a judicial perspective. What what are we talking about when we're talking about trying to balance these competing interests? <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. When you move from uh, government policy or or just general discourse in the public to actually judges having to make decisions, because there's certainly a school of thought which says that the courts, the judi- you know, the judicial branch ought to be drawing straight lines, because that's what the rule of law means. Justice Scalia is, is famously, you know, said that the rule of law is a law of rules, and he famously hated the idea that that courts would be balancing different interests and in trying to apply constitutional provisions, which is why he decided uh, and wrote the case in 1990 that held that the government can, in fact, burden people's religious practices through neutral laws of general applicability. And on the other side in that case was Justice O'Connor, who was a famous balancer. She, she'd balance anything. Uh, you know, she walked around the world and she'd see two things, and a pear and a banana, and she'd balance them. And, and, and her judicial decisions are all about balancing. And so her view was that the, there was nothing wrong with the court's standing in there and saying, well, there's, there's the government interest here and there's the religious interest there and we're going to decide in this particular case that the government interest outweighs the private interest or whatever. So those reflect very two different uh, judicial philosophies about what courts should do. And the problem with allowing balancing with, for judges is that basically then you're just saying, well, these nine people, the Supreme Court, who we decided can sit on the Supreme Court because they're really good lawyers, are going to just kind of decide what the law is based on their own, you know, whim, is what Scalia would say. Uh, and so you don't, have any, you don't have any clarity, you don't know what's going to happen in the next case, and you're allowing these unelected judges to make these incredibly important decisions. On the other side, you say, as somebody like Justice O'Connor would say, judges are appointed to exercise their judgment, right, after all, and they're not just enacting their own beliefs into law, but they're actually trying to take, trying to appreciate the specific context that disputes arise in, think hard about what the interests are, and reach a reasonable conclusion to justify it through uh, judicial opinion. So that's just a different view of what judges do. Now, I'm much, much more on the Justice O'Connor side than the Justice Scalia side, and I'm happy to let judges do balancing and exercise their discretion and their judgment, uh, but lots of people, of course, disagree. Now, you have now taken sort of two public road trips. Uh, You took a road trip around America with Holy Hullabaloo's, where you looked at famous sites where Supreme Court cases around uh, religious practice were disputed. And now with your new book, When God Isn't Green, you've gone around the world, literally, and looked at sites where environmental, uh, environmental protections and religious practices have come into conflict. You have looked at a great variety, a great spectrum of religious practices, but you have described yourself as a, as a person without faith, as an atheist. I wonder how in these two road trips has your appreciation or your interest in, in religious practices and religious life changed and altered over the course of sort of observing all these people investing so much of their time and their thought into these invisible things? Well, I can't say that my, you know, my beliefs have changed at all. And I, 
I suppose what I would say is that I have a more concrete uh, appreciation for what I've always appreciated in the abstract, which is, so I think before I went to see the whales, uh, the whaling festival, for example, or before I went to see the Ganesh immersion, I would have said that these are very vital religious practices that hold together the community. Um, and that I believe that they should be supported. But having gone there and witnessed them in uh, in person, I I guess I just have a stronger uh, my m- m- my belief is kind of that 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 these are important practices is stronger I suppose. But it's just more concrete. I I you know I can see the Hindus in Mumbai celebrating the Ganesh, and I can see the Inupiats in Alaska. Uh, gather, gaining meaning from this from the whale celebration in a way that I had not been able to do before, and so it's kind of a, a matter of degree. It's a little subtle. Um, I wouldn't say that I have specific positions that have changed, but uh, but the way I feel and think about them, and the way I can talk about them, for example, to my students, I think is very different. Well, and that that raises an issue that I I'm very interested in. How does this experience translate into the classroom? Because you're teaching people that are going to be lawyers, and you're teaching them about one particular sliver of the law. And so, how do you emphasize and and make them really feel the importance of these subjects? And I'm hoping that they get it. But do they get it? <laughs> um, I think a lot. I think most of them do get it. I mean, in, in environmental law. Environmental law is, a, is an area where we've always uh, used, you know, real-world examples to uh, to get across the point. Um, you know, I don't actually go on field trips uh, with students in environmental law, but a lot of people do. And but I do use movies, you know, and pictures, and and, and really seeing the environmental degradation uh, uh, of certain practices really can drive home how how important it is to protect the environment. I mean, you, you, you can't teach, for example, the Clean Water Act without showing some video of the Cuyahoga River on fire, you know, or, Cirque, or the Superfund statue without showing Love Canal. And so with the religion uh, side, I think I try to do the same thing. I try, you know, to try to bring home that these religious freedom claims have real depth, have real uh, import for individuals and for communities and to the extent that I can describe what I've seen and bring that uh, home to the students, I, I, I think that's really important. You know, I think it does make the class more interesting. I sure hope it does. Uh, I feel more confident teaching these classes and teaching the cases to having been to them, been to places where they came from, and I can, I think I can convey what's at, what's at issue in the cases and the disputes better having gone there, that rather than just saying, well, you read the, you read the case, you know, in paragraph two, it says blah, blah, blah. Let me tell you what it's actually like there, you know. So I, it's, it, I think it's helped me a lot in the classroom. Well, Jay Wexler, every time that I read one of your books, and especially when I have the chance to talk to you, I always learn so much, and I just, I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you. I really enjoyed uh, talking with you. We've been speaking today with Jay Wexler. He's a professor at the Boston University School of Law, where he's taught environmental law and church-state law since 2001. He's the author of several books, including Holy Hullabaloos, which is one of my favorites, and The Odd Clauses. We were talking today about his newest book, When God Isn't Green, A Worldwide Journey to Places Where Religious Practice and Environmentalism Collide. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at WBEZ at their Navy Pier Studios overlooking Lake Michigan. 
WBEZ is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija. Mary Gaffney engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and learn more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.